Welcome to the World Beyond the Tale, the Page a Day American Gods podcast. I'm your host, James, and today we're reading page 86. Once more, of the life of Essie Tregowan, who came from a chilly little clifftop village in Cornwall in the southwest of England, where her family had lived from time out of mind. Her father was a fisherman, and it was rumored that he was one of the wreckers. Those who would hang their lamps high on the dangerous coasts when the storm winds raged, luring ships onto the rocks for the goods on shipboard. Essie's mother was in service as a cook at the squire's house, and at the age of twelve Essie began to work there in the scullery. She was a thin, little thing, with wide brown eyes and dark brown hair, and she was not a hard worker, but was forever slipping off and away to listen to stories and tales, if there was anyone who would tell them. Tales of the Piskies and the Spriggans, of the Black Dogs of the Moon and the Seal Women of the Channel. And though the squire laughed at such things, the kitchen folk always put out a china saucer for the creamiest milk of night, put it outside the kitchen door for the piskies. Several years passed, and Essie was no longer a thin little thing. Now she curved and billowed like the swell of the green sea, and her brown eyes laughed, and her chestnut hair tossed and curled. Essie's eyes lighted on Bartholomew, the squire's eighteen-year-old son, home from rugby. And she went at night to the standing stone on the edge of the woodland, and she put some bread that Bartholomew had been eating but had left unfinished on the stone, wrapped in a cut strand of her own hair. And on the very next day, Bartholomew came and talked to her, and looked at her approvingly with his own eyes, the dangerous blue of a sky when the storm is coming, while she was cleaning out the grate in his bedroom. He had such dangerous eyes, said Essie Tregowan. Soon enough, Bartholomew went up to Oxford, and when Essie's condition became apparent, she was dismissed. But the babe was stillborn, and as a favor to Essie's mother, who was a very fine cook, the squire's wife prevailed upon her husband to return the former maiden in her former position in the scullery. Even so, Essie's love for Bartholomew had turned to hatred for his family, and within the year she took for her new beau a man from a neighboring village with a bad reputation who went by the name of Josiah Horner. And one night, when the family slept, Essie arose in the night and unbolted the side door to let her lover in. He rifled the house while the family slept on. And that is our page. So here's Essie Tregowan at long last. She's one of those great incidental characters of the story. Possibly my favorite coming to America section, but I, I'm probably going to say that every time we reach one of these. It makes mention that her father was a fisherman and a wrecker. Traditionally, a wrecker would be a person that attempted to remove material goods from shipwrecks that happened close to shore. And I did a lot of digging around. I couldn't find any data to support the idea that, that anyone would have lured ships to crash using lights from shore. Most of the reason is that lights that would have existed in 1721 wouldn't have been able to carry a far enough distance, especially over water. Similarly, if a captain saw a light ahead of him, he would consider that the light would be coming from a, a source that he would not want to crash into. That said... I also tend to trust Neil Gaiman's historical research more than my own, and so this could very well be a historical accuracy that I just could not find data to support. It also could just be that it's a story, and it's a good story, and it works well within the context of the story. This whole subsection is about stories and storytelling and the power that stories have, and it really, it really gets us digging deeper into a lot of the themes that have been sort of touched upon but not super not in not in a super amount of detail uh let's see cornwall as the book mentions would be an ideal place for this sort of work though given that it's a peninsula on the southwestern tip of england with a lot of beachfront property the book starts getting into a lot of 
a lot of creatures and a lot of mythology pretty quickly in this section. Uh, Pisky is the same as a pixie, although it seems that this term is more specific to Cornwall itself. One of the earliest instances of the term occurs in the 1865 book Popular Romances of the West of England by Robert Hunt, though it certainly seems that the term itself is significantly older. It just may not have made it into print, being that it was pretty region-specific dialect. A spriggan is thought to be related to trolls from Scandinavian folklore, often depicted with large heads. They were rather ugly and guarded a barrow treasure deep in the hills of Cornwall. According to the English Dialect Dictionary, published in 1905, they were considered the ghosts of giants, despite their often small stature. To turn away a spriggan, one could turn one's clothing inside out. I don't know why. Is that what Criss Cross was doing? Oh no, they were backward clothing. Not in- Damn it. Pop culture fuck up. Ugh. Now, black dogs are probably familiar to Harry Potter fans or perhaps Sherlock Holmes fans. Mythology for black dogs goes back quite a ways and is all over English and European folklore. It's generally considered a bad omen. In Norse mythology, there's a large black dog known as Garmer, guards the gates of hell, hell being the daughter of Loki, not the Christian hell, although name's a bit on the nose. Generally, a black dog is thought to either be a shapeshifter or sometimes a demonic entity. In northern England, it could have referred to Bargest, a large black dog with even larger teeth and claws. That would mean an omen of death. In other parts of England, it could be known as Black Shuck, written in Suffolk, England, as early as 1577. In Cornwall, however, there are a number of packs of ghostly dogs that uh, also were considered to have been the cause of a mining accident in the 1800s. The best-named of these dog groups, however, was the Devil's Dandy Dogs. and The devil would hunt people with literal hounds of hell nipping at their heels. The herdsman who was pursued by the hell beasts fell to his knees and prayed, and was, of course, saved a right serious a-mauling. Neil Gaiman also wrote an American Gods novella entitled Black Dog, collected in Trigger Warning in 2015. Collection is worth picking up for Black Dog because it's a pretty lengthy sort of follow-up to American Gods, but The Man Who Forgot Ray Bradbury is probably the greatest piece of short fiction that Neil Gaiman's written, so definitely check that out if you haven't. I won't get into the details of the story because, God willing, in about 300 and however goddamn many days I have left here, I'm probably going to start getting into the novellas as well. Why not? Finally, a seal woman is probably a nod to selkies from Scottish folklore, although it seems that it has hit most of the British Isles in some form or another over the years. In most instances, they were half seal, half woman, and would lure people to their deaths, similar to the siren from Greek mythology. Also like sirens, selkies are sometimes thought to have been the inspiration for mermaids and even merman legends as well. Uh, Selkie would shed his or her skin to change from seal to human. Essie grows up. I think it's interesting that right from the get-go we understand that she is not a hard worker, but interested in stories. In a bit of a coincidence, she's here in a story within a story. And this is another common Neil Gaiman thing. There's an issue of Sandman where a girl gets lost in a labyrinth, and the man who's telling the story is himself being told in a story to a bar, in a bar, to a bartender, 
while that story is all within the context of Sandman and Hoy vey, there's just layers and layers of story to that one. I don't think I told that well enough, but there's there's seriously like five or six different bits of storytelling going on within the one story and it's it's not until you get to the end of the the trade collection of stories that you realize that there's yet another layer on top of the already present layers and it's really it's just well done. There's a book called Ancient Crosses and Other Antiquities in the East of Cornwall by John Thomas Blight. He notes in the folk in the areas were known to make small pilgrimages to nearby natural wells, at which point they would leave various offerings, including sticking a rag to a tree and spitting on it or wrapping one's hair around the branches of a nearby bush or tree. Researchers were asking questions of the people why they would do this sort of thing, and an older man had said the cattle were preserved by it from infectious disorders that the fairies, he says Dawani May, Mathe, the fairies were kept in good humor by it. This comes from page 71 of the 1858 edition, and the image on the cover looks like a giant cock jutting out of the earth, and so I obviously want to own that book. That's amazing. This form of appealing to the Pisky or patron saint, perhaps even, has historical precedent mentioned. The volume mentioned above discusses a bit further that the these are old traditions in the 1850s and that they're starting to fall out of favor with the younger generation, the damn millennials of 18-whenever. Noted that Bartholomew went up to Oxford. This reference that he's off to school. Went up to is apparently fairly common British slang for going off to college, and that was something I learned here. Essie's condition is, of course, pregnancy. Baby is stillborn, meaning dead at birth, and she's allowed to come back to work. She invites a man into the home named Josiah Horner, and this is the real name of an Old West lawman who is known as Frank Canton. More interestingly, he changed his name from Josiah Horner after giving up being an outlaw in and around Texas and Nebraska. There was also a Mary Horner in Cornwall in the late 1700s. Nothing more concrete than that towards specific people that Neil may have been referencing. I also did make a note that Josiah Horner rifled through the family things. All the way back on page 7, we were discussing the difference between riffled and rifled. And I don't expect you to remember that. It just stood out to me because I had done enough extensive time on that. Anyhow, thankfully we've reached the end of my notes for the day. These episodes are going to be a bit longer, one, because I love Essie Tregowan with all of my heart, but also because there's a lot of little mythological references and folkloric references and things that I'm trying to unpack. And I'm trying to do it as quickly as possible, but given that we're already hitting almost 13 minutes of recording time, it'll be significantly shorter once I cut out my ums and ahs and coughs and various other unpleasant mouth noises. You can get in touch with the show at theworldbeyondthetale at gmail.com and on Twitter at worldbeyondpod. I also started a Patreon for the show at patreon.com slash worldbeyondpodcast. Thank you to James from Unabashedly Obsessed for being my first patron. And you can leave me a little bit of cash if you appreciate what I'm doing and you find it useful or interesting. And I can feel like I'm not pissing it into the void. I don't know if you piss into voids, but thank you to Julian Granganage for his version of St. James Infirmary Blues, which we use as our theme song. And thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with another page, and remember, only the gods are real.